morning's scripture reading will be from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is God's word. Please be seated. Holy God, we know you as our Father. We know you also as the Creator, our Creator. The darkness becomes light and chaos becomes creation. Desperation becomes hope. Hatred turns to peace, tears of sorrow to tears of joy, enslavement to freedom, apathy to love, because death in us moves to life in Christ. Abundant life, the only life, eternal life. And all this is because you say so in the cross. We are grateful for your speech, your words, and especially your word made flesh. And we pray in our own stammering and groaning speech for our distrust of you to become trust and for our cowardice to become courage and for our pride to become modesty for confusion to become clarity as we follow your word become flesh in Christ. And as we approach this text this morning, we pray in the name of the Christ for you to give us eyes to see and for ears to hear your word. And it is in the name of Christ that we pray this. Amen. Hope your Bibles are open to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses and then the rest of the chapter next week. Um, you'll, you'll remember just by way of review that the first 14 verses of Ephesians is this really long sentence in the original language. And it's just it's chock full of all of these, these truths and all of these realities that, that come true for us in Christ. And they really, as Paul begins and he's in prison, begins to think about it, his heart begins to soar as he thinks about all of the majesty that happens in the world because of God's love. And one of the ways that we've been looking at this, uh, this first chapter of Ephesians is to think about it, to get our mind around all of that teaching in those first 14 verses by thinking of it as an early Christian hymn. And uh, as you know, the hymns, good hymns, usually have at least three verses, and there's a chorus that causes our hearts to soar. And that's the way that this, this first 14 verses of Ephesians is, uh, is, is sort of uh, organized. 
And so what you have is in verse 1, what it is that God the Father has done. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He's chosen us in Christ to be holy and blameless. He's predestined us in, in Christ to be adopted as sons. We become a part of his family. That's the first verse. It's, it's allowing our minds to see what it is that God is doing, just sort of a snapshot of all of the things that God is doing. But that is enough for us to get to the chorus to the praise of his glory. The second verse is what God the Son has done, verses 7 through 12, and that is the Christ is at the very core of the very plan that God has for all of creation, and that is to unify everything again in Christ. And so because that's true, there are some things that Christ accomplished for us. Because we are enslaved to sin, we find redemption from that sin through His blood. We also find the forgiveness of those sins through Christ Jesus. All of that, again, to the chorus, to the praise of His glory. And then last week, we looked at what it is that the Spirit does. And the Spirit of, of, of God is, is, is sometimes a scary thing to think about for a lot of folk, but it's one of the really integral parts of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. The Spirit of God that we receive when we are baptized for the remission of our sins, as Paul says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, is a reality. We, we receive the Spirit of God, God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in us. It dwells in us. And two of the reasons that Paul's mind kind of wanders to as he's writing from a prison, the, the words of this, 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 this soaring chapter is that he seals us, that is, he makes us authentically Christ's and God's. And at the same time, he is a deposit in us, sort of like earnest money. And when it comes to those points where God's promises either happen or don't happen, that's when we have confidence that they will because God is treating His Spirit like earnest money in believers. And if we get to the end of time or we get to a place where the promises have to come true and God reneges on that promise or decides that He's going to do something a little bit different or there's some other change to the plan, like earnest money when you're buying a house, He loses His Holy Spirit, which means that He stops being God. That is how confident Paul wants us to, to, to know and to believe and, and to be disciples of Jesus of Nazareth, the investment that God has put in us. And at that uh, verse 14, he sort of stopped because he realizes that he's writing to human beings like you and me. And that there is only so much of what it is that he's writing that we're going to be able to, to swallow and to, to absorb into the way that we think about this, this, this life with Christ and this life in God's sight as creator and father of all of us. There's only so much. And so he begins to pray, which leads us to the prayer of chapter 1. And the reason for the prayer is in verse 17, that you may know God better. And we talked about this last week as well, that, you know, everybody has this idea, this theory, some abstract thoughts about what marriage is all about until you get married and marriage comes to you as a person. And all of the realities and the promises and the blessings and all of that of marriage become a part of your reality. That's why he prays that God become the one that we know better and better and better. Because as we know God better, all of those truths that he's talked about become more real and more real and more real. And one of the ways that you know that you're living with these abstract truths as the ultimate reality in your life is that you begin to, to live a life of hope and you live a life of love and you begin to live a life in the power 
uh, and the strength of God, which is that resurrection, life-giving power that is made available to us. Now, at the end of chapter 1, that's the end of that prayer, and we go, goodness gracious, what else could he write? Well, listen, folks, Paul is only getting warmed up. And what he's going to do, beginning in chapter 2, is to go back to a little text right there in the middle of, of, of chapter 1 and begin to talk about its reality and how it becomes a reality for us. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. Now here it is. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Now for just a minute, let's step out of Ephesians and let's think about what the entire Bible has to say about sin. The Bible speaks about the effects of sin in a lot of different ways. And, we, and we've talked about that in our Genesis class on Wednesday nights and in sermons. The, the original sin of Adam and Eve, of not trusting God, of wanting to go their own way, according to Genesis 3, brings thorns and thistles into the garden and into God's good creation. And, it, and it's not just something that you observe. Sin is something that becomes relevant and personal and intimate in people's lives. The power of sin is dynamic, we read in Genesis. It is a corrupting power. It corrupts everything and it corrupts everybody. And sin is like pollution in the sense that it's everywhere. There's nothing that is not touched by it. Sin also fragments and it, it repels and things begin to fall apart and things begin to run down. It affects everything like relationships. God and man are separated from each other. The original sin of Adam and Eve separated God and human beings. We were forced to leave the Garden of Eden and go east of Eden to make our way in the world. Not long after that, it's man and man that are being separated as Cain kills Abel. And the reality of the world becomes a reality of killing. And on top of that, relationships between men and women, even in the best of those relationships in marriage, where there are vows that are made, because of that sin, that relationship at times is terse and it's tense. And it's not just relationships and it's not just creation, even our bodies. Our bodies very rarely in this life, especially when you get to a certain age, of which I'm in, that our bodies do not feel a lot of ease. In fact, what our bodies experience is dis-ease. And so in a nutshell, the Bible describes sin as a separator. The Bible describes the sin that is in the world as a fragmenter of people and relationships and God's good creation. Yet, going back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, God will bring unity back to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Think about a, a bomb or a hand grenade going off. There is a detonation and everything fragments and separates and begins to fly apart. That's what sin does to God's good creation. And by God's power, all of that as it's separating is going to be brought back to unity. That is the greatness of God's power. Now, the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2 begin to explain how heaven and earth are reunited under Christ. 
And he begins with how men and God are reconciled to each other. And so in these first 10 verses that Stephen just read for us, three things. Humans share a common problem. Humans require a unique, one-of-a-kind solution. And humans receive a new life from God that is a new way of being. And that is this mystery that he's going to be talking about through the rest of the book. Number one, humans share a common problem. You know, so much of our world is trying to figure out how we're different and how we're unique and how we stand on our own. But when you get right down to it, the biblical view of human beings is that we all share a couple of things in common. We're all made by God. We are sons of God by creation. But we also share a common problem when it comes to our relationship with God. I've talked a lot over the years about G.K. Chesterton. He's a great uh, British writer and a Christian thinker. If you watch on PBS, the Father Brown series, G.K. Chesterton is the one that wrote that series. It's been made into a lot of different TV shows. But when he was living um, at the beginning of the the 20th century, uh, living in London, there was the Times one day uh, putting a question out in the newspaper. And the question went something like this, what is wrong with the world? Now, Chesterton was known not only for his great intelligence, but also for his wit, And he wrote a letter to the Times answering that question, what is wrong with the world, with these words. Dear sirs, I am. I am the problem with the world. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. The thing uh, uh, that's great about that statement is that it is a bit of wonderful self-awareness. Paul, though, will be much more blunt He says in verse 1, as for you, you were what? You were what, church? Say it louder. It's an important truth. You were what? Dead in your transgressions and sins. I love uh, the comment by John Piper on this text. He says, we need a Savior not because we're in the doghouse. We need a Savior because we're in the morgue. End of quote. In other words, we are blighted with sin. We are blighted in decay. We are dead and do not know it. You know, some of you have seen the movie The Sixth Sense with with Bruce Willis many, many years ago. You know sort of the storyline. What is the big problem that Bruce Willis has in the movie? He's dead and he doesn't know it. He's dead and he doesn't know it. Now what Paul is going to do to help us to understand how that comes a part of our life is he's going to talk about the three ways that contribute to our spiritual death. First, it's following the ways of the world. And some of the other translations, it's worldliness. Now what in, in, the, in the world is worldliness? There's a description, of, a fellow wrote the book, uh, Losing Our Virtue, a fellow by the name of David Wells, years ago that I think gives the best biblical definition of what worldliness is. He writes, worldliness is that system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective which displaces God and his truth from the world and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. End of quote. Now what Paul is saying and David Wells is writing about is that idea in which the counterculture 
which is the culture that is not God. When God created the heavens and the earth, that was the culture. It recognized God as creator. We were made in God's image, and that was a good thing, and that's the way things are supposed to be, and that's the way things work. The counterculture, when sin entered into the world, was for us to deny God or to reject God or to disbelieve in God or put God behind us in order to live out our own lives and desires and will and to put in the place of what he is uh, saying is the best for human beings to put in what we think is best for human beings. That is a counterculture. And worldliness is when that counterculture, which is the rejection of God, begins to be the culture inside of us. And it's that culture that begins to order our life. It's not seeking God, but it's seeking self-will in the path that we have chosen. That's in verse 2. Also in verse 2, there's a second one mentioned. He talks about following the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, in our modern culture, we don't really like to talk about the invisible world or invisible malevolent beings. But Paul clearly believes that there are dark beings who inhabit the realm beyond the physical earth. And since the, gar- since the Garden of Eden, the Bible has communicated that there is an invisible force in the world who works against human beings. Why is the serpent mentioned at all in the garden scene in Genesis chapter 3. You ever thought about that? I mean, if the real deal was we didn't trust God, the serpent doesn't need to be in there. I mean, it could have been written this way. You know, Eve saw the fruit. She saw that the fruit was delightful to the eye and that it was probably going to taste very, very good. And because of that, she could have said, well, it tastes good and there's a bit of knowledge in there, the knowledge of good and evil. Maybe that's not such a bad thing. Maybe I should eat it. And she ate it, and she didn't trust God and God's word who said, do not eat it. But remember that these people that are receiving Genesis back uh, at the beginning, when Genesis was first being written, were people that were getting ready to go into the promised land. And they needed to know that there was not only an enemy that was to be approached in a human form, but there were going to be malevolent forces, evil forces, spiritual evil forces, dark forces that were going to be working against them and that they were not to trust themselves but to trust God because that malevolent being which is called Satan later on in chapter 4 don't let the devil have a foothold in your life and in chapter 6 Paul is going to talk about him again because our struggle is against not against flesh and blood but against these spiritual forces of evil you need to put on the 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 armor of God to be able to to be victorious but he's going to say this is the reason that there is death in all of us Because of the worldly culture, because of following the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which does not have the will of God at the forefront of his work. And then down in verse 3, he talks about gratifying the cravings of our flesh. This is the appetite for the things, not all the time bad things, but they become a, a hyper desire for those things that we believe is going to make our life that's not God. It's the job, it's a relationship, it's any number of things that we think is going to make our life that's not God. This is the appetite for the things that exploit other human beings and in the end ends up exploiting us. And and that's why the great problem of evil is hard to get a handle on. 
The, the ultimate solution for our death is not going to be better parenting. It's not going to be better education. It's not going to be better health and, 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 and insurance systems. It's, it's not going to be even better economies. We are dead, spiritually speaking. Which means that we are beyond human help. That we need a Savior. We're not just in the doghouse, we're in the morgue. And beyond that, we are children of wrath. Verse 3. Which means that this God must be taken seriously. You know, we, we, we sometimes uh, run into folks bridling against uh, the idea of there being wrath or you know, this, this kind of um, anger of God. And you, you know what the thing that uh, we all struggle with is, you, you know, nobody wants to think about punishment, but we, none of us, not a single one of us, not just the ones living in this, uh, living. Sometimes when I'm preaching, it seems like we're living here forever, right? Not just us who come into this auditorium, but the world at large, we don't want to live in a, in a, a cosmos, a universe. We don't want to live even in, in, in a world or a community where there's no justice. Everyone wants there to be justice. And this is the wrath that comes. It's the justice for those who have vandalized God's good creation. And what Paul is trying to say is that it's not in us to be able to do anything about that because we're dead. We need a Savior. And that's why humans require a unique solution. Some years ago, while we were living up in the Midwest, uh, the local football team at the university was a member of the Big Eight. At that time, University of Oklahoma was, was kind of in a, a low point. The University of Nebraska, best team in the nation. And, uh, you know, the Cornhuskers at that period of time in uh, the mid-90s were just a, a juggernaut. They would go into town, uh, take care of business. Usually teams were unable to score against them. There was no hope of winning. And for a lot of us, especially guys, you know, we, we see these signs at football games and sometimes on ESPN on game day. We see these signs as students hold up these college game signs that say beat state or uh, skin the bears or, you know, beat the Jayhawks or beat the Longhorns or gig them or whatever. There was one student at the, when University of Nebraska was playing Iowa State, they caught him on camera. He, and this, I mean, Nebraska was just wiping the field up with Iowa State. And this kid from Iowa State holds up this sign that said, Against Nebraska, maintain dignity. <laughs> Do you know what we, as a spiritually dead people, need? We need a special one of a kind intervention. And when you think about interventions at our level, the human level, at earth level, who is it that normally does the intervention? It's the one who loves, right? Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Because of his great love for us, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. You know, the trajectory of the fallen world, as we looked at at the very beginning of the message, is everything moves from life to death. 
Things are born into this world. Things come alive in this world. But somewhere in the end, there is death. Some things live a very short period of time. Mayflies, they live 24 hours. Born in the morning. Midlife crisis by lunch. And then death. Some things live a very long time. Bowhead uh, whales have been known to live 211 years. Geoduck clams, known to live 160 years. Even tortoises, known to live 175 years. But in the end, life ends. And death takes over. And Paul says that spiritually speaking, we are already there. That our body catches up to where we are, where our soul has been all along. And we have no chance, we have no hope, because we are dead in the water. But then God, who is, verse 4, breathtakingly loving. And again in verse 4, He's rich in mercy. In verses 5, 7, and 8, He is unmatched in His graciousness and His grace-giving. In verse 7, He is transcendently kind. This God intervenes when we're dead in the water and makes us alive with Christ. And this is who the Bible describes him to be over and over and over again. We've been in Genesis. Let's think about Exodus for a moment. The people are enslaved and they can't get out. And God provides a Passover lamb that this Passover lamb is going to lead to the freedom of the tyrant of Egypt, the Pharaoh, who has enslaved his beloved people Israel. And the providing of that Passover lamb, again, it's providing a way out from under death, and it's out from under the judgment of God for his people. And not only did it end their enslavement, but it made them rich. And the fact that God's provision for the Passover lamb was a reality shows him to be kind and to be gracious. But that was then. The Messiah arrives, and one of the first things that his cousin, John the Baptist, in seeing him across the street walking down the road says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the very idea of God becoming the Passover lamb in Christ, not providing it, but becoming the Passover lamb in Christ, is just astounding and breathtaking. And it's shocking and it's sensational and it's free and it's a gift. And that's why it's just absolutely unbelievable that we would ever boast about our own salvation it's a gift you know one of the things that was happening in the pre-christian world of which ephesus was a part is that boasting and bragging that was the norm uh i much of what i'm about to tell you i i'm going to credit to randy thompson in a conversation we had this past week but one of the things that happened in the pre-Christian ancient world of Rome, aristocrats in their speeches, when they would get up and they would make speeches to large crowds or in their home at dinners, they, they would boast of their family's accomplishments and deeds. Because that was the way you knew that there was a heritage and a, that there was a claim and that this was a person of renown and this was a person you should respect. Romans 
of the great houses of Rome displayed their family achievements on the wall. And, and all these things that were achievements and, and markers of acclaim, they were all paraded in front of the, the, the guy that had died in the funeral. They were all paraded before him as, as the funeral procession was, was taking place. And the same thing would happen in warfare. And we get this, those of us who have, uh, grew up in a locker room, is that before you get out there, you're boasting about what you're going to do and you're bragging about what you're going to do to that other football team and that other wrestler or basketball player, how fast you're going to run in a tracking event. Same was true in warfare. There were five crowns in the ancient world of Rome. There was the grass crown, which was the highest. In 1,200 years of Roman history, only eight of these were given out. So rare were they. There was next the civic crown, the pictures of Julius Caesar. You see uh, he's wearing the grass crown. Third was the crown of triumph. It was made out of uh, bay laurel leaves. And it was, um, it was worn by generals who had won victories over, or had won battles or wars over great enemies. There was the crown of ovation, which was made of myrtle. And that was victories over lesser enemies. And there, there was the first over crown of which there were a couple of these. And basically, uh, the first one over the wall of an enemy city that was being besieged got a crown. Now, it was usually awarded them during their funeral, but it was first over the wall. And these guys would wear these things, and they would talk about it, and they would brag about it, and talk about their ancestry, and all the things that they have achieved. And that might have been a part of the Roman Empire, but for the church in Ephesus, which was a part of that Roman Empire, Paul said, you were dead, but you've been made alive by God through grace, through your faith in what he has done through Christ. Therefore, do not boast. By grace, verse 8, you have been saved. This is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can, say it with me, boast. So what would Paul boast about? In Galatians 6, he says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. You know, I grew up a Dallas Cowboy fan, proud of that. Greatest Cowboy in my generation, and really for me uh, of all time, is Roger Staubach. Captain Comeback, Roger the Dodger. December 28, 1975, Metropolitan Stadium, Minneapolis, Minnesota, divisional playoff game, Cowboys versus Vikings. Cowboys down 14 to 10. Only seconds left on the clock. And there is a 50-yard pass to Drew Pearson to win the game known as the Hail Mary Pass. Now, the Cowboys win the game. Staubach gets the credit for the pass. Pearson is the one that caught it. He admits later that there was a slight push-off of that Viking defender. But nevertheless, a victory in the end zone. Cowboys win. They end up going on in the playoffs. But in 1975, I'm about 13, 14 years old. And for a 13 and 14-year-old kid... That is a day that will live in your memory forever and ever and ever. And if you're an old Cowboy fan, you just remember the greatness of that day. Now, I didn't do anything. 
but I boasted of that pass. Especially when we were living in Washington, D.C., and you hated the Redskins. We don't boast because it's Him. Humans, then thirdly, and we're done, receive a new life from God. Grace begins with human redemption and continues with human reformation. He says in verse 10, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That word handiwork is a really interesting word. It means that God turns us into a piece of work. In love and through grace, God changes us and shapes us and forms us into something else. There's a quote by Michelangelo. No one really knows if he said it. It's just attributed to him. But it sounds right. He said, I criticize by creating something beautiful. You know, there's a lot of ways that you can criticize people, right? You can just say, boy, that is really bad. Or that is really ugly. Or that really stinks. Or that really tastes horrible. You can criticize in a hundred thousand different ways. We are creative in the art of criticizing. Or you can criticize by creating something really beautiful. And people look at it and they see what is lacking by contrast. You know, speaking the word is incredibly important. We should never be ashamed of the gospel. Never. But we should also recognize that living the word as a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth is important too. God creates us anew. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He creates us anew and as products of grace and love with the purpose of bringing good and sending good into the world and living in beauty and sending beauty into the world through our good deeds. It's very practical. I mean, think about your work environment. A disciple of Jesus in the workplace. There's one who will not gossip or stab in the back when it comes to office politics. There's one, a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, who does not always talk about herself, but listens to others and is patient. In that work environment, dog eat dog, everybody trying to climb up the ladder, there is a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth who's not afraid to admit mistakes but to tell the truth even at great cost. One of the ways that that God is trying to illustrate to the world that they are dead in their sins and transgressions is by turning you into something beautiful. So that when people look at you, and when people interact in your life, and you intersect with them as they intersect with you in this life, and they begin to think about their life, and they contrast themselves with your life, your humble, your humble, non-boasting, non-bragging, modest before God, humble life, what they see is that they're dead in their transgressions. Because you have been made alive in Christ. We want to offer you an invitation to to, to enter into that life. And the way that you do that is you, you understand the words of the gospel. 
that you are dead in your sins and transgressions. There's nothing that can make you alive because you're dead. Only God can do that. But there is this opportunity, this gospel that comes into your life. The gospel is not a philosophy. It, it, it's not a good storytelling. What it is is a fact that Jesus of Nazareth died the death that we should have died. And because he lived the life that we should have lived, we get his life. We are clothed in his righteousness. We get everything that belonged to him. And if you believe that to be true, then the way in faith you respond to that is to be baptized, to receive the forgiveness of your sins, and to receive the gift of that Holy Spirit that changes you and changes you and changes you as you grow to know God better. Remember the prayer in chapter 1, as you grow to know God better. And if you would like to have that happen in your life this morning, some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. We'd like for you to come down and make those needs known as we stand and we praise God together. Let's stand and let's praise. Let all that is within me cry worthy. Let all that is within me cry